The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the persistent and nasty podcast elaine here how are you all doing hope you're looking after yourselves staying well and being kind to yourself and each other well it's another episode in our spooky season and today i chat with playwright and performer megan rose thomas meg and i talk drama school we talk uh, finding a love of writing um we also talk some mental health that has a big impact on um, Meg's writing so trigger warning for that and then we talk about how uh, horror needs to be more on stage and how we put that on our stages and how we start to develop as writers, performers, professionals, just as artists and more importantly as human beings. You can follow us on all social media Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty. Send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. You can follow both Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram. And I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. For all of you who support and love the work that we do, we would be so grateful if you can give us a little financial support from time to time, just whenever you can. And the link for that is in the show notes of today's episode. I would suggest for today, oh, what would I suggest? Oh, a nice glass, well, if you like red wine, I guess, maybe if you don't, something alternative. Hey, Ribena, you know, looks like red wine, tastes lovely. Um... Beer always is a good shout. Any of your spirits, hot chocolate, coffee, or you can always just have a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Well, welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Today I am joined by the lovely Megan Rose Thomas. Welcome, Meg. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So give our listeners a little potted history on yourself, how you found your way into this industry of ours, um, and then we'll get chatting about your new project. Lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, So I'm Meg. I'm originally from Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. I've been involved in the theatre from being a tiny obsessive child who didn't really care about anything else from doing youth theatre from when I was really little. Uh, grew up, kept on doing it, ended up, uh, did a BTEC in performing arts, ended up down at East 15 doing acting and contemporary theatre down there, ended up taking a really, really long gap out of acting and returning to it after about sort of five or six years. I'm now doing bits and pieces of acting, but uh, due to lots of different reasons, I'm kind of slowly transitioning, hopefully, into writing. So I've just finished um, 
master's degree at the University of Glasgow in playwriting and dramaturgy. So I'm very early career in all of that, but it's all quite exciting. Very exciting. Um, I mean, a couple of things that I would love to touch on if you're all right with it. Yeah. Um, obviously drama schools and your experience of drama school, like it's one of the things that a lot of our listeners and indeed a lot of our guests that we've had on have spoken about and um, their experience and the things that kind of drama schools are really needing to yeah. improve on. So I'd love to know if you're happy to share your experience of East 15. Uh, I am happy to share my experience of East 15. I'll sort of preface it by saying that I did not have a particularly good experience at East 15. Um, I know a lot of the people I went to East 15 with absolutely loved it. It made their careers. They had a wonderful time. I found it very, very difficult and didn't really enjoy myself very much. So I just want to preface it by I'm going to be very honest about my experience, but please don't think that I am trying to disparage East 15 as an institution. But as you've said, there are a lot of issues with drama schools. Um, I graduated a little while ago, so I've heard tell that maybe some of the things that I experienced have improved, but who knows. Um, I had a bit of a difficult time at drama school for several reasons. Um, one is I am a, I'm a disabled performer. And back when I was at East 15, the main disability I have had not yet been diagnosed. So I'd had a whole lot of health problems, but I was still trying to pursue a diagnosis, which meant I had a lot of issues. Like I was having problems with my heart and problems with my joints and things like that. And because I didn't have a specific label to put to that, uh, I mean, who knows if they would have been, you know, it would have been handled differently, but I was having a lot of health issues that made it very difficult to keep up with the huge workload that you have when you're going to drama school. And there was very, very little support available for both my physical health issues and also mental health issues. These are things that I had, the mental health issues are things that I had declared when I joined there. And also the specific health issues, um, I have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, which is a genetically inherited connective tissue disorder. Um, it means my joints are incredibly weak and it also can has a whole bunch of other problems such as gastrointestinal problems, it causes migraines, um, blood pressure issues and things like that. So I had some of those specific issues diagnosed, but not the overarching problem. Um, we warned them that I had a history of sort of mental health issues, which I'll probably come back to later because that's a lot about what I write about. Um, and I found it a very, a very difficult environment in that most of the individual people I interact with interacted with were incredibly supportive, but the institution as a whole was not in any way supportive. Um, so they tried to essentially kick me out because I had um, an episode of cardiac arrhythmia and was hospitalized. And they were like, well, it's very clear that you can't keep up with the physical rigors of the course. So it probably is best that you should leave. Um, I've missed a week. But they had some very strict kind of um, three absences and you're out sort of policy. This was a little while ago now. Um, I think it is likely that they're a bit more kind of flexible and open about that now. But um, the, the kind of hours and stuff are very difficult. And I just in the last couple of years of it just stopped like sort of probably my last year of it stopped being able to really cope with the workload and I did end up, and I'm not going to kind of lie, lie about this, um, probably, yeah, I wasn't coping very well. And I ended up letting my fellow actors down because I just not was, I did not have the mental health 
I didn't have the cope. I didn't have the physical energy and I was not giving what I should have in those rehearsal rooms. So I ended up letting an awful lot of people down and just ended up in a really difficult position where that's why I graduated drama school and I went, I'm never acting again. I was just like, I quit. I can't do this. Um, and I didn't act for like a good five or six years after I graduated. Um, so wow. I'm a bit heavy, do you know what I mean? But you- Meg, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's so important that, you know, we discuss all of these things and I'm sure if the actors that you worked with at drama school hear that and hear you now say that, they'll understand. And I think I would like to hope that we're in a position where um, when someone is going through that and we're in a rehearsal room or we're at a drama school, that's understood. Um, and it is, there's so much pressure at drama school and three absences, like you can get it, right? We all know what it's like. You're doing a show. Everybody's got to be there. We're all trying to create this ensemble <coughs> um, and and move. But, you know, if you've got heart issues, like yeah. that's like, you know, there's ways to work around things, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and I would like to think that, and I have heard that some drama schools are getting much better mm-hmm. at that. Um, also just really, I mean, I think it's really great of you to be that honest and go, I, I let people down. I, I, I can't lie about it. I, I really did. And I might have had a, a whole lot, well, I did have a whole lot of mitigating circumstances, but there's only so much you can do when you're in a really, really difficult place. You're running on less than fumes and you are letting people down because you need in a rehearsal studio to be able to be there for your fellow actors. And if you're not doing your best, it affects everybody. Mm. Um, And I guess my real issue is uh, the fact that I think that was very, very clear. And instead of any support being offered, it was disciplinary, um, if that makes sense. So I tried to have conversations. I was like, I am not coping with this. And they were like, yeah, it seems like you're not really keeping up with the rigors of the course. And I was like, that's not what I'm trying to tell you here is that to help um and at the end of it the the director of our last production told me that if it was up to him I wouldn't have graduated and I kind of carried that with me for like the last 10 years is that I I have that degree on my CV but do I really deserve it like I've been told that if it was up to the director I wouldn't have graduated and I wouldn't have got that degree and that's a very difficult thing to kind of carry and go Mm. coming on something like this is actually quite stressful for me because I'm going what if people that I knew back at the time listened to me and they listened to this and and they're aware like oh yeah you're the person who turned up late to rehearsals and you're the person who was you know not kind of pulling her weight but I feel like I don't know yeah like I said maybe if you're honest about it I think we've all been in situations where maybe not to such a great extent as I had we're not giving our 100% because three quarters of our brain is outside of the rehearsal room dealing with stuff that nobody else knows what's going on um that's the big issue with a lot of stuff like this kind of profession if you're in an office you can compartmentalize a little bit whereas you can't really do that in a rehearsal room um everybody can see if you're not fully there um I don't know if that makes sense but no it it totally does and I think that and I think it's a structure of how we have worked for years and but this structure doesn't work though like I think that's the that's the thing that you know the rehearsal periods of even just being in a show as a professional actor you know like you do 10 till 6 6 mm-hmm. days a week most of the time you're commuting before the 10 o'clock start and then you're commuting yeah. after it and then if you're a carer for mm-hmm. whoever you're then home and you've got to do all that and then run your house and do life admin and yeah. then attempt to try and learn lines like none of that is actually conducive to a healthy 
uh, and also like um, a healthy and um, what is the word I'm trying to search for here? Um, productive. Yeah. Because actually your brain can't do what it needs you to do. Mm-hmm. I just think that rehearsal time should be smaller. And that also goes for drama school as well. Like I do, obviously the building of an ensemble and all of that is super important. And that sense of discipline in that way about learning your craft is absolutely important, but it's also about care. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I think an experience I had of being kind of early in in my training was being told repeatedly that, when people were asking for like needing extensions and things like that, there was this, there are no extensions in the industry, which is entirely true. But also the way we were kind of being taught of um, the industry is really hard. This is the easiest you will ever have it. I have never had it that hard ever since. And in fact, you know, if people on a job that I was employed to do spoke to me in the way that I was spoken to at drama school, I, I would be leaving. I'd be saying, actually, no, you know, this is a job. This is employment. Um, you're paying me to be here. Uh, and I don't have to be spoken to like that. But it's not that easy. Obviously, if you're on a, you know, a job, that's, you know, you need your money to live, you need your wages, but you're throwing away six weeks of work, maybe, you know, if you're leaving a set, you're not throwing away your entire life's work, which is very much how it felt to me as a, as a young actor at drama school. I've been acting since I was six or seven years old. My entire life up to this point has been battling to get into this very prestigious place at drama school and I'm being literally told there are 50 women who would love your place so if you don't want to be here leave and that's not that's not a kind of pressure that I think tends to be on anyone in their actual professional career um I don't know I, I just felt like a lot of the stuff that was put on us at, at drama school to prepare for the industry did not materialize when I actually returned to acting five or six years later um, I found it a much more welcoming place than, than drama school had been um, probably because we've all got drama from drama school um, <laughs> we're all like okay we're, we're in this boat together um and I hope that just like you've been able to share it because you obviously acknowledge that coming on and chatting about it is a little bit stressful and everything yeah. but I hope like um just being able to say it out loud and I th- I would like to think that anybody that listens to our podcast um is coming from a place of care and love and compassion and inclusivity so know that I am grateful for what you've shared and I know that our listeners will be too so thank you very much um thank, thank you. you for sharing because I know how I know how it can get us because it's still there it still sits right absolutely um, and that so yeah you then obviously had your five six year break mm-hmm. um, and what did you do in that time because that must have been such a shift it really was it was the moment of going okay so I can't do this so what do I do and that was really really terrifying because like I said I, I just every single thing in my life every bit of free time every bit of money everything in my life from being quite a young child had been I'm going to be an actor and if you take a step back at yourself and you go I clearly can't do this I have failed you know in inverted commas at what I intended to do so what do I do now and what essentially amounted to was a whole lot of depression and feeling really useless I then ended up and ended up getting a real person job um, I worked as a GP receptionist. I worked at St. Bartholomew's Breast Cancer Care Centre doing reception administration. Um, 
I then later ended up sewing. So I worked for several years doing repairs and alterations, sewing and things like that. Um, and just, I did not find any of it fulfilling in quite the same way. And then I was very lucky to get into a relationship with someone who was very supportive and they have been very supportive in going, just, you just give it a go. Your anxiety is holding you back. You clearly really miss this, try it. And I did. And I am so grateful that I did because I've sort of stepped back into it and found that especially the Scottish acting world, having moved here to Glasgow in that period of time is so welcoming in a way that I hadn't really experienced those first times I dipped my toe into the London acting world when I was still living down there. Um, it's a very, very warm, welcoming, um, supportive environment. It's a lot smaller, so I think everybody knows everybody. Yeah. People are very generous with their time, generous with their knowledge, getting people going, oh, there's this audition that you should audition for. And I'm going, hang on, you're auditioning for that as well. Why are you increasing your competition? Oh, because I think you'd be really good at it. And there's such a lovely environment here. Yeah, it's it's really, really nice in, in the kind of the sort of Glasgow, Edinburgh acting community that I'm aware of. Yeah, no, I, I I think it is because we are smaller. So um, it, it is exactly that, a community. Um, so tell me then, so you kind of come back, you came back to it and <laughs> now kind of found your way into writing. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was COVID <laughs> that put me on to writing. So I always done a little bit of writing, part of a drama school, part of my final project was um, I wrote a script um, that was performed as part of the debut festival, which is sort of final acting and contemporary theatre performance um, stage that got long listed for Bruntwood. Um, and I was really proud about that. And then obviously I had this sort of this career break and I was working a lot, um, doing little bits and pieces of acting all over the place, as all working actors do. Um, corporate, schools, tours, panto, murder mysteries, all that kind of stuff. And then I found myself with literally nothing to do. Yeah. As we all know, and everyone listening to this knows, um, our industry died first, essentially. Mm. Um, and I was very aware. I was like, hmm, I know that my mental health is very fragile. I need to do something and I need to do something creative. Otherwise, I'm going to lose it or like lose the passion and the motivation. So I just thought, you know what? I'm going to do something that I've wanted to do for a while, but it's just not been practical and I went and applied to do my master's. So I applied to the University of Glasgow to do the MLIT, so Master of Letters in uh, Playwriting and Dramaturgy. I was very lucky in getting a place. And it was a very strange thing in that um, it was quite early in lockdown and I did the entire course completely online and didn't meet most of my classmates until graduation. Wow. And so never met a lot of my classmates. So it was a very unusual position of, of doing that. Also, especially because even though it's a writing course, like writing and dramaturgy, it's still very practical. So there's a lot of performance elements and they've never had to do it over Zoom before. This has never happened. This is unprecedented. In yeah. So we're having to work about how do we do our live performance things when we can't perform live? How do we do it? Do we pre-record it and, and say it was live at the time and this is a documentation of it? Do we try and live perform over, over Zoom and things like that so it was very very challenging um and quite exciting actually I learned an awful lot about like film and editing and sound and audio and things that I never would have had to do as someone who's primarily focused on stage work just because you've not got another choice yeah <laughs> yeah I mean that the whole learning online and <clears throat> is really interesting 
and I know some people absolutely loved it um and I I know I taught online and I hated it because <laughs> it was because I missed the interaction and the energy shared in a space um but yeah as you see our whole industry just kind of went to sleep for a little bit um for a big bit it's not quite woken up yet either um so great you did your master's and then so now you've got your writing and you're putting it out there and um yeah so I had a short story that was featured on the no sleep podcast that was kind of early on in my sort of returning to writing um because I wasn't really writing for the theater at that time I was writing short stories and I wrote this short horror story that got picked up by this podcast that I had never heard of the podcast at the time. I'd just written it and posted it online. And they find short stories online of the kind of no sleep is a subreddit um, where people share fictional sort of scary stories, the whole creepy pasta online things. And it was really, really interesting to hear a short story that I had written that was not intended to be a play read by an actress. Um, so they had this actor and she read it out and it was essentially I was like oh it's a monologue I hadn't realized that was a monologue and that was one of the things that kind of sparked me into doing a bit more writing I ended up with um, a piece being workshopped with in motion theater uh, which was really good fun um, very recently I had um, the, the kind of the big thing I'm working on at the moment an extract workshop with stage to page in Glasgow so that's been really fun as well amazing Great. And it was the horror thing for you always something that you leaned into or? So I, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, it's okay. On you go. That awkward Zoom thing. Um, so I think initially when I was writing, I was really trying hard to resist the fact that horror was what I wanted to write because of a weird internal thing of like, that's not, that's not proper, serious writer stuff but also because of a mental block of going, yeah, that's not a genre for stage or for theatre, um, which I think is maybe one of the things why having that short story selected and read for the podcast was like, oh, okay, you know, this, this is theatrical, um, even if we're not used to seeing that much horror on stage. Because horror was always the thing that I absolutely loved to read, watch, all that kind of stuff, but it's just been so rare to see on on stage in theatre and things like that I feel like over the last few years that's really been picking up um but I think back when I first started writing and kind of investigating horror the only stuff I really knew about was like the woman in black and then there was ghost stories and then about it and now obviously things are picking up and there's a lot more people exploring that kind of thing on stage um I think people are very hesitant to tackle that on stage for several reasons um one is it is technically very difficult to do a lot of the time um, because we're very used to horror movies which use cinematic conventions so heavily to be the thing that creates the fear so editing and camera tricks um and things like the lighting and things that are uh, i'd say probably one of the things that um film has the advantage of is the whole concept of cuts you can cut you can move you can change the audience's um visual perspective in a way that you can't do on the stage which means you have to think in a slightly different way to create something for the theatre that is really frightening um so that's kind of what I was thinking to do. I think it's really interesting that thing though about horror isn't it on the stage and I think because people when you say horror automatically think 
um, cinematic horror Mm -hmm. films and blood and guts and gore and frights and all of that. But actually, there's so many different types of horror Mm -hmm. that are actually really easy to play on stage, I think. Like the sense of that really unsettled feeling that you have in horror. Um, I mean, Gaslight, I think, is a horror play. I totally agree. Absolutely. Um, I think I I have a very, my definition of horror is almost that it's a genre in a similar way to how comedy is a genre. Comedy makes you laugh. That's the whole point. You can have a Western comedy. You can have a, you know, a musical comedy. You can have a horror comedy. And horror makes you frightened and it makes you uncomfortable and it makes you feel unsafe and unsettled. And it's, I think what defines horror is the way it makes you feel, not necessarily what it's actually about. So I have conversations with people and they say, I cannot stand horror movies. And what they mean is they don't like slasher movies. They don't like gore. And I say, but you really like this film. And they say, no, 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 that's a thriller. And I'm going, okay, that's fine that you define it that way. But but it is a horror film by some people's definition. Um, And I think that is a big thing is that it is such a vast array of um of different subjects and that's something you really find if you go to something like a film fest a film festival like fright fest fright fest is a horror film festival but it encompasses so many different areas of things that most people wouldn't consider to be horror like i watched a movie about climbing at fright fest and i think it was one of the, the movies that got my heart racing the most because it's so tense and atmospheric um because it's so dangerous and you have this high level of threat all the way through it uh, but yeah, I think it's a very, very broad genre that I think I would define just by this makes me feel uncomfortable, unsafe, a sense of risk and a sense of danger rather than necessarily any implication of violence. Um, often I feel like the, the horror movies and the books and things that I, I like the least are the ones that are violent. It feels a bit, not lazy, that's very judgmental, but um like the kind of equivalent of, of jump scares in movies. Um, if you're just flashing something up at the screen to make my primal lizard brain, but is it really scary? I don't know. Or is it just a jump scare? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us about you kind of, your main um, themes that you've got in your writing and in particular like um you're obviously your current project and if you wanted to touch on the um the short story that was used for the podcast as well okay um so the current project that I'm working on at the moment began as my dissertation piece for um the playwriting masters that I did in that it's a bit of an unusual thing that I'd never really done before because having been to drama school it is not a traditionally academic background so I'd never really had to write an academic essay before so you can do uh, you can choose to write an academic essay as your final piece or you can choose to do what they call practice as research so you do a piece of artistic practice so for example for me that was writing a play and then you also write a, a supplementary essay that places that piece of creative writing in an academic context. So you have to demonstrate how what you have written is essentially an experimentation or a development or an exploration of a particular theatrical or dramaturgical focus and background. Um, 
So my intention was to use a piece of horror theater um, to explore issues surrounding mental illness and neurodivergence by um, experimenting with theatrical techniques to do that. So the thing that I first started out with was the concept of we use the term blackout in psychiatry and we use blackout in theater. So literally all the lights go dark. But in psych psychology and mental health, people experience blackouts, which are these lost periods of time where you're not sure what it has happened and what's gone on. So that was the first focus. I wanted to use um, theatrical techniques such as like multi-rolling as a way to explore someone who felt unsafe by keeping the audience guessing at the same time. It's a bit rambling, but I'll try and explain. So the play that I have written is named Unseelie which comes originally from a Scots word that means um, malevolent or sinister in some way. Um, it comes from a folklore background. So the concept of the fair folk or the fae or the fairies, that they come in the seely and the unseely varieties, the ones that are friendly to you and the ones that are unfriendly. And it is a play about a woman called Robin who has recently had a baby um, and she has moved into her family home, which is a rural cottage in Scotland after her mother's passed away with the newborn. And she starts to become convinced that there is something in the woods that wants to take her child away from her. Um, and I wanted to use multi-role casting to explore the fact that actually uh, Robin is experiencing postnatal psychosis. So... As audience members, when we watch a play, if you have one actor who comes in in one scene wearing a nurse's uniform and says, hello, I'm Nurse Sandra and I'm here to help you with the baby. And then they come in in another scene wearing a police officer's uniform and they say, hello, I'm Officer Anderson. I'm here to you know, investigate this crime that's happened. We as the audience accept the fact that that is one actor playing two characters. But what if one of the other characters insists, no, 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 I met you before and you were the nurse. Um, what happens if we take a doll and we treat the doll like a real baby? If an actor comes on stage rocking a doll and saying shush, we as the audience accept that that represents a real child in the world of the play. But what if somebody challenges that and says, you know, that that's not real? How does that leave the audience kind of guessing and confused? So I wanted to use that blackouts, non-linear function to essentially put the audience in the lived experience of someone who is experiencing psychosis. Um, I had exper um, an experience of psychosis when I was in my late teens. And the best way I could describe it was, it was a bit like living in a horror movie for six weeks. And that's kind of what I wanted to explore through this. You sound so fascinating. Um, thank you for sharing as well. Um, like kind of exciting, makes me re feel really excited. Like a really, um, a new approach something different that um, we need to see much more of on our stages. You know, like I also love the fact that it's from folklore. Like I think that there's something really important in that. And um, Scotland <coughs> uh, is very much of a path. Our stories are passed down through generation. We are very much that as part of our culture. Um, so I love the fact that you're taking those things and there'll be people listening who are, who still use a lot of Scots that those words will be like, oh yeah, straight away, absolutely. Um, no, and then there'll be people who are Scottish and haven't heard that Scots word and is, are probably now Googling as we speak to get as much information on that as possible. 
and just that sense of taking something like um psychosis and postnatal psychosis uh because again it's one of those things as women that isn't always discussed mm-hmm. for us um and I think that's a really important thing to do like I think that especially I guess as actors as well like you know if you've had a child you're just kind of you know you get your year off or whatever and then it's like yeah you come back and you just you know I I need to put out there that I'm okay mm-hmm. when maybe you're not like as you were saying even it's kind of links back to what you said about drama school like you know just that idea of like we don't always take the time to make sure and check in and the care um so the steps were obviously stage to page and then you're hoping, I assume, to take it further? That's the hope. So I've spent the last year working on some new scripts and a whole bunch of other stuff and working and things and um, involved a lot of submissions to an awful lot of competitions and awards. Mm. And I've been in a situation where I've had some absolutely lovely rejections, the nicest rejections, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, uh a, fr- a dear friend of mine called Jude Reed has a thing that she calls her a hundred rejections challenge, which I have subscribed to and I think is wonderful, which is she has phrased it for herself as this is my hundred rejections challenge. I'm going to try and get as many rejections as I possibly can, which has kind of changed my, my, my attitude. to application. I love that. Like, that's a really like, yeah. The rejections roll and I'm like, right, I get to tick my number up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So I've had some really great feedback some really great um, kind of a few things that have been long listed for stuff but never got any further and then it getting picked up by stage to page was absolutely fantastic um, if you're listening and you're thinking about applying to stage to page I know there's one in Glasgow there's one in Edinburgh I think there's one in London as well just do it it's so good <laughs> go as an audience member or an actor submit your work volunteer as a director um, for people I don't know if they know how it works but um, people submit a short extract of a play um and there is a guest host for the month and they select three short plays pair the the writer up with the director and then they randomly select the cast from volunteers by literally pulling the names out of an envelope so you get a completely random cast um and I was incredibly fortunate in that I was paired up with um, Alison Woodhouse who is an absolutely fantastic director and we'd never met before we'd never worked together before but I feel like we had like a pretty immediate connection of that. No, you really understand what I'm trying to do with this. And, and I really like the way that you're, you work. We had some inc- incredible actors from Acting Coach Scotland, which is where they were hosting it. And I'm very grateful for that, that Ali really wants to pursue this further. So I'm currently working on a redraft and we're hoping to get this on stage, essentially. Um, I'm not quite sure what the next step would be. We're thinking probably a rehearsed reading. I also will need to build some puppets <laughs> because the child is represented by a puppet that evolves and becomes more and more frightening. So I need to try and work out how I'm technically going to do that, potentially work with some other puppeteers and things like that. So it's all very early days, but very, very exciting. Um, so yeah, I genuinely, if there's a kind of opportunity to do something like um, scratch nights or rehearsed readings, there is nothing better than hearing your words read by somebody else in someone else's perspective there's there's nothing like it to give you another perspective and make you realize these are the problems and the things I need to work out um yeah so I'm doing a full-on <laughs> cut it to bits and re-edit it kind of thing um very excited about that amazing amazing great um 
I will. I, I look forward to seeing it grow and rehearse readings and then being on stage, Meg. Like I think <laughs> that it sounds like the kind of theatre that Scotland should be making. Um, we have the talent for it for sure. So um, yeah, finger all all the fingers crossed for you. Um, now since this is our spooky season, um, podcast, uh, we're asking everybody what their favourite horror movie is or just their favorite movie to watch during spooky season oh wow okay so i am a massive horror movie nerd so that is such a difficult question i was kind of getting that vibe from you and i was like i kind of thought this question could be super interesting um okay right so now i'm gonna have to think of not only what's a good movie but one maybe not everybody has seen you Um, can you can have more than one i i'm gonna give you you can absolutely have more than one I would say one I saw that is absolutely excellent is I believe it's called The Relic. I'll have to double check on that one. It's called The Relic and it is an Australian movie about three generations of the same women in this farmhouse. And the grandmother um, has dementia and the, the, the daughter and the granddaughter come back to the house to take care of her. And it is absolutely wonderful and that it absolutely terrified me and then I cried for about 20 minutes after the film ended because it was so moving um because I'm gonna try and describe it without too many spoilers um her dementia is the source of terror because it almost becomes externalized and the house is almost contaminated by this condition and the structure of the house itself begins to change as her psychology is altered by the fact that she has um, Alzheimer's and this kind of mental condition. And there, there's even moments in it where the house becomes a maze and the daughter and granddaughter get lost in it. And it really gives you a kind of perspective of what it is like to fit into the mind of somebody who is experiencing the world in an altered state. Um, the Relic, I believe it's called, it's very, very good. Um, I've just checked it, it's called Relic. Relic, so, Relic. Yeah. It, um, and another one that's called Vigil or the Vigil, which is an American film, and it is in a mixture of English, Yiddish, and Hebrew. And it is a film about, I believe it's called a Shoima, who is a person who in the Jewish community sits, watch over a coffin after a person has died. And the concept of the film is this gentleman has died, and this young man who has recently left his Hasidic Jewish community, um, they need a shoima to sit over the body. No one else is available. And they bring him back in to sit over this body overnight. And I won't tell you anything more, but it absolutely <laughs> Okay, great. I mean, I am the biggest scared to cat. Like it, it like it makes Louise laugh, like the 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 lack of horror movies that I've seen, because I just get so invested and then I like relive them for days afterwards. But I always, I am trying to up myself a little bit more. I just seem to be getting better the older I am. So that's, you know, that's, that's good. That's good. Um, Meg, our final question. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if you know why we're called Persistent and Nasty, but it's about two kind of political moments that happened just before we kind of founded Persistent and Nasty. One of them in reference to Elizabeth Warren, nevertheless, she persisted. And um, the reclamation of the word nasty after the pre- previous president of the United States called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman for daring to give him facts. And then we had the hashtag nasty women. So, um, 
Megan Rose Thomas, what does the term persistent and nasty mean to you? It means keeping going at the things that you know you care about and are passionate about, even if other people act like they're not worth caring about, because there will be somebody else out there who cares too and will value the fact that you didn't shut up when other people told you to. Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh, Meg, I really love that. <laughs> like, um, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today. Thank you for it's, been, me. it's been great. It's been so lovely to chat to you and get to know you. And I really look forward to seeing how things go for you. And um, yeah, Thanks maybe so we'll much. meet at some point in life. I would really like that. That would be lovely. That's great. Well, until next time, lovely listeners, stay, stay nasty. nasty.